Welcome back to the Banana Bag Podcast. I'm Laura, I'm your host, and just so you guys know, this is part one of a two-part series, and the second part will be out the third Tuesday of this month. So today, I'm speaking with Erin. She has gone through the cancer journey herself and has also seen her mother and her husband go through the cancer journey. I think it's important to hear from healthcare professionals, but I also think it's really important to hear from the patients because it helps you get a more well-rounded view of the healthcare system. In the episode, Erin talks about what it's like to be thrust into the medical field without any background or training in it. She brings up a lot of good points, but I really liked when she talked about the moments where she realized that she had to advocate for herself, not only physically, but also mentally and emotionally. She talks about how easy it is to get lost in the healthcare system, and I think that's a really important topic to bring up. I think there's a lot to take away from her story, both as a healthcare professional, but also as a patient or a future patient. And again, this is part one of a two-part series, and the second part will be out the third Tuesday of this month. Don't forget to subscribe and download our episodes, and also follow us on social media at the Banana Bag Podcast, or visit our website for more information, including ways to support us, thebananabagpodcast.com. All right, here's Erin to share her story with us. Hi, Erin. Thanks for joining me today. Hi. Glad to be here. I am so thankful that you were willing to come on and share your story with us because I think your story is really unique and it's definitely, there's a lot there to unpack and learn from. So thank you. Yeah. Well, I hope it's helpful in some way. It certainly is unique. <laughs> mm-hmm. Can we start with a little bit about you, like who you are or where you're from? And maybe what you do. Sure. Um, I currently live in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I uh, was born and raised here. Um, but I've spent some time on the West Coast, um, did my undergraduate work out in California. And then uh, seven years ago this month, I got a job as a flight attendant with Delta Airlines. And um, have relocated a bunch to work in different cities. And from Boston is where I started and in Salt Lake City and was based in Los Angeles for a time. But now I'm back in Detroit uh, since my marriage to my current husband back in 2016. Well, congratulations on your work anniversary. Thank you. Yeah, I can't believe. I know it's such a cliche, but time flies when you're having fun. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. (laughs) So you have been through a lot. You've seen a lot. You've learned a lot. Why don't we just start from the beginning and kind of talk about your story, like where it started for you? And feel free to go into the detail that you feel comfortable with and, yeah, like start from where you feel like it starts. Yeah, so I think that um, my like big jump into my medical journey really began in 2016 when my mom was uh, suddenly diagnosed with very late stage ovarian cancer and we spent just under six weeks in the hospital with her um, before taking her home on hospice uh, where she passed away just over a week later. 
But those six weeks really were a massive eye-opener into a world I had heard of, um, but very – I just didn't understand. Mm -hmm. Um, I could see that it was difficult and tiring um, and scary, but Mm -hmm. I really don't think you can comprehend the level of just knowledge until you're kind of thrown into it in some way, shape, or form. And we were definitely (laughs) thrown into that. I think actually – my first interaction with you was as my mom's nurse or um, yeah i was the nurse tech there so it was kind of the like nurse tech at that a time. nurse aide yes and i made the connection to sijin and mm-hmm. sijin is my husband and then his family new york um, family so yeah and that i can't even believe this will be the 5 year anniversary um of her passing that's crazy. It really. So I guess time flies even when you're not having fun. Um, <laughs> but those weeks in the hospital were both like the most difficult weeks I've been through and also like some of the fondest memories. And I think mm-hmm. as a human, I didn't understand that you could be devastated and utterly like kind of joyful and peaceful at the same time Mm -hmm. um, until we went through this medical trial with my mom. That blending Mm. of bitter and sweet was just something that I didn't know could happen. And it was a really hard like juxtaposition to kind of swallow and work through. So Because you were creating some beautiful memories at a really difficult time in your life. Yeah, that was just kind of how I would define that time of learning the medical lingo um, and everything that cancer is and the things that it isn't. And then just accepting that reality, attempting to find the good in it, even though, you know, it was really... It was terminal for my mom from the beginning. Um, But I feel like the nurses um, on that floor and even the doctors, but really Mm -hmm. the nurses are there so much more than what you see. You know, Mm -hmm. you just see they're, they're kind of the face of your medical journey. They're kind of the ones that are always at the bedside with you and giving the medications and helping you through things. And you may see the doctor maybe once or twice a day if you're lucky. Yes, similar to a flight attendant. I get blamed, Mm -hmm. you know, for the weather. I get blamed for the bumpy rides. I get blamed for, (laughs) you know, delays and baggage and all this stuff. I'm the face of Delta and I kind of consider like nurses to be the face. Yeah, I really like how you put that because a lot of times – And this doesn't always happen, but people can view nurses as the ones in control of everything and the ones calling all the shots because they're the ones at the bedside. But a lot of times, like you were saying with flight attendants, nurses don't have control over the things that are impacting the care. Right. 
It's a really interesting position to be in. And I think that the communication is a really big part of it because it could go wrong kind of quickly. <laughs> but if it goes well, you can have a really good experience with the nurses, kind of like what you're talking about. Yeah. But the nursing staff that we, you know, worked with, um, with my mom were just, they were everything to us. Um, and just brought us so much like well, knowledge like on a level that we could understand, um, kind of translating some of the diagnoses and um, the things that were going to take place, but also just maybe like a piece is the word I'm looking for. Like you're not the only one who's been here and not understood and made it to the other side of this. And like we're going to help kind of bridge that gap and mm-hmm. help you in this massive learning curve. I don't know how much of this, I guess, you want me to get into, but like that we were married at the hospital was like also a big part of that kind of journey for us. Yeah, but- what I think is helpful about talking about that is like you were saying before, how you were experiencing yeah. some really beautiful moments during a really hard time. And having to experience both of them. So yeah, I would love to talk about that. Sure. So my mom was diagnosed on the 13th of April. And um, on the 19th of April, she had surgery. So she was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. So the next step was kind of biopsies and surgery to figure out, like they knew it was widespread, but just how widespread. Mm -hmm. Um, And on the 19th, she had um, a hysterectomy um, that didn't end up taking as long as what we thought because the cancer ended up being so very extensive. Mm -hmm. And that night after surgery, I remember the doctor came into the room where we were waiting to hear, you know, what was the outcome and why was the surgery so quick? You know, we were prepped for nine, 10 hours and he was done after maybe four. And and this was just a week after you guys had found out about the cancer. So. This is a week after, yes. Um, he walked in and the first thing he said was unfortunately. Mm. And... Um, after that, like, I don't even know what else was said. Mm -hmm. And I know that my dad and my sister felt similar in that we just didn't, after that, unfortunately came out of his mouth. Um, like the kind of just everything you'd imagine, tears, um, hands and face, like can't comprehend, just shaking, um, Mm-hmm. I yeah, I don't even know. I think the conversation went on for maybe 10 or 15 more minutes trying to explain to us, you know, what he saw and how it was just too much, but you know, I don't think it was until the next couple of days that we fully kind of swallowed that reality that it was too much um too much cancer to do anything, you know, anything mm. more for her. And that's, again, coming back to um, those nurses who are kind of 
that face of our journey for us, you know, walking us through, this is what he said, this is what that means. In the case of your mom, like this is what that's going to look like. And we're just going to take it, you know, kind of day by day. Um, So less than 10 days after diagnosis, we realized she wasn't going to live much longer and they were advising, you know, hospice or, you know, do you want to stay in the hospital and kind of be here on hospice or go home? And um, it was at that point, I was just engaged to my husband that we kind of started thinking about a wedding. Um, At the very minimum, I wanted a wedding dress and a picture with my mom. And that just flowered into, well, what if it could just be a bedside ceremony in your dress? Um, Can we get a marriage license to, yes, we can get a marriage license. Okay. How many people can we fit in the room? And then medical staff kind of hopping on to the idea with us and saying, no, like we can do something bigger. And at the end of that day, so this is two days post-op for my mom, we're getting married in three days. Um, Wow. And there can be 42 people and we're going to cook food for you and make a cake and pick your wedding dance song. And then all this time realizing that we hadn't even talked to my mom yet. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So then it was like, pause, like, let's make sure this is something, you know, she just left the ICU. And I remember walking into her room with my dad and my husband, and I don't even know who else was there, maybe an aunt or an uncle, and just saying like, mom, we're talking about getting married and I really want you here. Do you think that would be a good idea? And she just kept saying like, wonderful, that would be wonderful. And was just kind of like overwhelmed and happy Mm, with us. And that just, you know, gave us room to breathe and something to celebrate in the midst of you know, her literally dying. This makes me think about earlier when we were talking about experiencing the two feelings at the same time. And your mom was probably feeling that too, knowing her situation, knowing her diagnosis, but also feeling like her daughter is about to get married. So you guys were kind of going through that together probably. This was like the height of those emotions. Um, You know, literally on my wedding day, which is, you know, easily one of the happiest days of your life. You know, I walked into my mom's room before the ceremony to get dressed and, you know, just kind of had a breakdown moment. Like she's in a hospital bed, you know, and they've done their very best to make her look, you know, like the mother of the bride, but there's, you know, still feeding tubes and IV tubes and drains. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I think they maybe even just like pinned the dress onto her. Like it wasn't even fully a situation where she could get dressed and laid a scarf on top of her, you know, around her neck and 
So whilst it's supposed to be, you know, this amazing, beautiful day, and it is, I'm also like at every moment glancing at my mother, realizing this might be my last day with her. Or if it's not, it's the second to the last or the third Mm -hmm. to the last. And what else can I say or do, you know, to like say goodbye, but also Mm -hmm. like say I do to my husband in this new chapter and looking back still like the best day, um, even though it was filled with these crazy, you know, mountaintop highs and then like valley, valley lows. It just, that um, acceptance of being between both and at both in the same day or within the same hour um, really kind of set me up for the next five years, which have been filled with um, the same sorts of very high highs and very low lows as far as like our medical journey is concerned. And being able to accept that as a loved one and as a patient that you'll experience um, both joy and horrific sorrow in the same moment um, or within the same minute is, I don't know, it's something that your mind really has to work through and accept in order to, for me, move successfully through any sort of medical hardship. Um, And that's something I hadn't experienced really before certainly that journey with my mom, but definitely my wedding day. It's hard because you kind of, like you're saying, you kind of almost don't know what to focus on because you're thinking about your mom's situation, but then you're also thinking about it's your wedding day and like thinking about the vows you're making. So it must have been like mentally a lot. Right. Just let it be kind of what it is and not try to change it or morph it into something different. Your mom is dying and you're getting married and everything is going to be okay. Like, Mm -hmm. It really sounds like it just requires you to have so much self-awareness to acknowledge both those feelings and be aware of both those feelings at the same time, but also not be overwhelmed by one or the other and not let one overtake the other. Yeah, everything's okay, even though it's not okay, right? Like it's just such a weird thing to say and an even more horrible thing to swallow. But nonetheless, like Mm -hmm. truth and, you know, a matter that really does need to be conquered, whether you're living through a medical trial or not. Like I think that's a reality that most people kind of need to, face and accept and to be able to carry on through it yeah and I think it's mostly because you know as a family we just came to this place where it was like again accepting death and life in the same breath in the same minute or day and that even though it's not okay that we're saying goodbye it's okay to welcome you know a new life or marriage and covenant um, and be happy about that because certainly um, (laughs) for us the day was so 
quickly planned and thrown together and, and not you know, let it just literally putting you my makeup on in a hospital bathroom. Like talk about not great lighting. Um, but mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. there was still a lot of joy and laughter and um, celebration despite, you know, hospital hallways and IV poles and staff elevators and wheelchairs and all the rest. So, Well, I remember seeing the pictures on social media and they're definitely some of the most beautiful pictures I've ever seen. (laughs) Mm. Well, thank you for sharing that with us. I, it seems like an abrupt entrance into the medical field, but then it kind of became a part of your life for the next mm-hmm. couple of years. Can you kind of talk about what happened next? Yeah. So after losing my mom and walking through, you know, those almost seven weeks of, you know, medical fire and <laughs> indoctrination, I thought I was the expert because I had been there. I had gotten married in the midst of it. And, you know, well, I'll grieve her loss for the rest of my life. You know, I definitely felt like as a family and just as an individual, like I conquered that and like I can do anything. (laughs) Um, All that happened and now you're here. Yeah. Um, And in a good way, like I think that needs to be celebrated. Anyone who's made it through any sort of journey, but especially a medical one, like, um, it's just a drain on you and your life and your family. And to celebrate the fact that, you know, even though a life was lost, like we did learn something and we survived that, um, you know, that was something that needed to be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. So I fully, in my mind, I wasn't like, oh, I'm going to get cancer and I'm going to do this well because I watched my mom do it and I survived it as her caregiver. Um, I didn't have that in my mind, but somewhere in the subconscious, I think I thought I could handle being the patient then if I could handle being the caregiver. And that was put to the test in 2018. I remember in January having a cold and, um, actually calling in sick to work like a couple weeks later, Having gone back to work, I was looking in the mirror of my condo and my husband was home with me. And I was like, does my neck look big? And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, your neck is fine. And I was like, no, I'm not being like extra. I just feel like this, you know, left side of my neck looks different. And when I feel it, like it feels different. And he is like, I think you're fine. Like, I think it's nothing, you know, just not dismissing me per se, but just like not concerned. Mm. And I was like, okay, Mm -hmm. well, you know, typically in our relationship, I am the one to kind of overreact. So I'll just take a minute and leave it. A month passed and I was like, no, this is, this is bigger. It's painful to me to like touch it and kind of turn my neck. Whereas Mm -hmm. before I hadn't really struggled with you know, any more neck pain than the other flight attendant who carries a bag around an airport for hours and hours and then, you know, lifts that same bag into an overhead bin two to three times a day. So mm-hmm. I went into my PCP's office and I have a really good long standing relationship 
with my PCP. Mm. And I guess I'll pause and put a plug in here. That relationship has been a massive, not just blessing, but like all-encompassing, helpful, something I didn't realize I needed, Mm. um, but I had, and I'm really thankful I did, you know, that I was consistent with all of those kind of annoying yearly physicals and then well women checks. Um, Because but when I really needed it, even though I didn't know I needed her, she was there for me. And if I had to give any advice, it would be find a good doctor, PCP, which stands for Primary care provider. Primary care provider. Yeah, develop that relationship, whatever it takes. Get them in your corner because you just never know when you're going to need that referral. And if you don't have a trust already built up, it's going to be that much harder. You can't just go see a cancer doctor. That's not something Mm. that happens. You just can't go see a dermatologist. You need referrals to all these people. The fact that I already had that long-standing relationship with my PCP was instrumental in someone listening to me and believing me um, when I said, this isn't normal for my body. And she immediately jumped on that train and said, great, let's get you the diagnostic test that you need so that we can figure out what this is. Mm. So she did, and I had an ultrasound of my neck um, because that's, sorry, I don't even know if I said that, but I was saying that my neck looked bigger in the left side of my neck specifically was causing me pain. And um, so I had an ultrasound within a week and then heard back that day, your ultrasound came back abnormal. You know, we need to send you to um, like a neck kind of specialist. At this point, we weren't even talking about oncology. We were just talking about a general surgeon who specialized in that area because there was clearly something in my neck that wasn't normal growth. So you feel something in your neck, you get the ultrasound, you get notified that it's abnormal. Like, how are you feeling in this moment? Were you even thinking that it might be cancerous? Were you even thinking that word? Like, how are you no. feeling? Not really. I didn't have any sort of idea when they said abnormal. I was kind of like, okay. When they said surgeon, then I started to be like, well, in my mind, I jumped to tumor. And then because of my past experience, I jumped to malignant tumor. But it really wasn't until I met with the surgeon that I started to kind of piece together this you know, they're going to biopsy it. And then we're obviously hoping for benign. And again, at that time, these words like benign and malignant, I was still getting confused. Do I want it Mm. to be benign or do I want it to be malignant? Like words that were just being used, like they were commonplace in my vocabulary Mm. and having to confirm with my husband or my parents or whoever you know, what is it that I'm looking for again? Or a lot of people go to Google. See, but I am not a Googler. I am maybe the only person in my generation who does not believe that Google knows all, sees all, is all. Um, I'm really bad. (laughs) 
<laughs> with Googling. In fact, I'll like sit and ask my husband questions on the couch and he's like, you know, you have the same phone in Google is how I'd like figure this out. You know, you and would I'm, find it the same way that I do is what he's thinking. <laughs> but it's so much easier if someone else answers the question. So yeah, yeah just I, a side note. I remember talking to someone the other day and they were like, yeah, I always ask someone instead of going to Google because then it creates a conversation, yeah. allows space to talk about it. Whereas if you just Google it, you don't right. really talk about it with anyone. Definitely. No, I am fully on that same page and am anti-Google and through all of my health trials have honestly never typed my symptoms into a search bar because it was never something I had a desire to do. And then I heard a lot of don't do it, don't do it, both from medical professionals and you know, friends and family alike. Um, because apparently all of them have either done it and not received good results and or been the caregivers for people who have, you know, done it and um, it's not been helpful. So as a healthcare yeah. professional, maybe specifically in the emergency room, because that's where I work, but we can always tell when someone's been on Google because they use <laughs> healthcare terms, yeah. but they don't put it the right way in the sentence. Mm. So, yeah. It's understand. pretty common to right. hear in the ER. Yeah. At least. So in that sense, maybe I'm a decent patient. <laughs> so I had maybe one appointment with this general surgeon um, and then he wanted to do these biopsies. And it was kind of at that point for me where I began to be a bit triggered mentally by terms like biopsies and um, Understandably. You know, benign versus malignant, but kind of up until this point, which is probably like maybe a month of, you know, figuring out what to do next and what's going on before I realized that, you know, maybe this was a bit more serious than just a swollen lymph node or something that had been caused by, you know, my cold or whatever it was that I had experienced back in January. So I had the biopsy. And maybe a couple days later, I got a phone call saying it was benign, you know, from the nurse. And that was really good news. Um, but, you know, doctor, we'll see you. Let's get that scheduled and we can talk about next steps. So I met with that doctor and um, he said, you know, the biopsy showed that it was benign. And we had been thinking maybe it had grown from your thyroid and that it was, you know, a tumor associated with thyroid cancer, but biopsy shows it's not. However, like it is a tumor in your neck that shouldn't be there. So it's up to you. Do you want to watch and wait um, or do you want to operate and take it out? That's such a big decision to make. I don't think I've ever been a watch and wait person. I am the opposite of patient. Um, so I was like, cut me open. Like I, I would say the I don't want to watch and wait, especially I think after hearing, you know, that my mom had essentially kind of watched and waited symptoms mm -hmm. that were not normal and turned out, you know, to have terminal cancer that, mm -hmm. you know, killed her in less than seven weeks. I was like, watching and waiting didn't really work out for her. Let me not do that for myself. So we scheduled surgery and essentially there was a plan A and a plan B and plan A was just to take the tumor out, 
send it to pathology while I was on the table. And if it came back again, benign, you know, we'll close you up and be done. And if it came back malignant, you know, we'd open you up further and most likely it would be thyroid cancer and we'd remove either part of or all of your thyroid. And at this point, like I had no idea what a thyroid was either. I was like, heard of such a thing, (laughs) wouldn't know what it looks like, what it does, or that I had been experiencing um, low thyroid problems um, for, you know, probably a couple years um, and just gone untreated because I didn't put the symptoms together. So on the operating table, turns out it is cancer. I wake up to no thyroid, no more tumors. Um, I think it was about a four or five hour surgery. And there were other lymph nodes that he said were, you know, at this point had been cancerous as well. I think it was like 26. In fact, it was a lot of lymph nodes that he removed. Um, And of the 26, maybe 22 or 23 were cancerous that the cancer had been growing for a while. And, you know, they hoped that they'd gotten it all. And we will, in a couple months, reassess and probably do a standard treatment for thyroid cancer, which was a radioactive iodine treatment. Mm -hmm. Because normally thyroid cancer is cured by surgery. And if not, you would do this iodine treatment um, because typically thyroids um, and thyroid cancer eats up iodine. So they would kind of radiate it through that form of um, iodine. I'm just thinking about how when you said you weren't a watch and wait person and I myself am not either. And just to be told like, let's watch and wait a few months, like that would have been a lot for me. Right. Even just waiting for surgery and waiting for these biopsies and then the result, you know. And at the same time, like stepping back, this was happening really quickly because you said in less than a week you got your biopsy and then you got your results the same day. It all happened so fast, but also so slow. So slow. It feels, it feels so slow. Um, But I could recognize looking back, you know, that I had good physicians in my corner who were, you know, helping the process along. Um, But it does feel endless. And it feels like I waited 10 months (laughs) to hear if this was cancerous. And then, you know, to receive the news that it wasn't only to wake up on, you know, my hospital bed after an operation to be told by my husband that, no, you do have cancer. That back and forth. Ugh. That was a different kind of devastating because I had already, you know, you go through a biopsy and you expect the worst. After having been through and watched your mom, you know, die from this disease, not the same specific one, but from cancer, I expected to have cancer because I had already had a shoe drop. Why not another one? Mm-hmm. And then- to, you know, kind of celebrate. It's not, I remember taking a picture and I had a finger pointed at my neck and I had written a caption on the picture that said not cancer. And I had a massive smile on my face because I had received that biopsy result saying benign Mm -hmm. only to, you know, maybe a month later 
wake up and have my husband tell me like, no, you do have cancer. And there was a lot of it. So many ups and downs. Yeah. Like I think that as I've walked this journey, another valuable lesson that I've learned is all the best doctors and the best diagnostic tests are still Mm -hmm. not perfect. And I don't know that they ever will be. You would obviously have a better picture of this Mm -hmm. working in the medical field over, you know, many years now, watching things change and watching progress. And these things are all amazing. And, you know, kudos to all of the scientists and medical professionals who continue to, you know, aid and grow that field. But tests still come back wrong. Mm -hmm. And the best surgeon in the world still might not get the cleanest margins. So that was a new kind of devastation that we hadn't anticipated because up until that point, we'd really thought, you know, it's not going to be cancer. He said it wasn't cancer. We did Mm -hmm. all the right things. I got tested early. Like I went to the doctor right away and then it was. And the kind of accepting of that reality was really difficult and it was really hard now to be the patient to not accept or to accept that my fate might not equal my mother's fate. Mm -hmm. And I had to have many of my doctors and um, a therapist and my husband and my family say to me, like, you are not your mom. Like she died in seven weeks and that was really extreme and that is not happening to you, even though it feels like it. Mm -hmm. I just couldn't It was a really hard, it was a massive leap for me to accept that reality, even though it seems very clear if you were to look at my path um, versus looking at my mom's path, that they're two different scenarios. In my mind, it was really difficult to accept that truth. But in the end- It's totally understandable that you were feeling like that. Yeah. I mean, you were just in a situation with your mom. It's a similar disease. And you saw the outcome of that one and you saw what happened. So it's very easy to then put the same outcome on yourself. And yeah, that would be really hard to overcome. Definitely. So that my summer, uh, so my surgery ended up being in May, I believe. And that summer was just really difficult while we waited um, to see you know, if the surgery was successful and if things were going to grow back. And I guess my, the radiation treatment was kind of continued to be postponed because I ended up having a lot of um, lymphatic drainage and ended up needing multiple uh, drains Mm. like placed multiple different times throughout the summer. And every time they did a CT scan with contrast, which was every time they put a new drain in, um, that postponed my treatment by six to eight weeks because Mm. CT with contrast involves radiation and iodine. And they didn't want that to factor into, you know, the pictures that would hopefully eventually help diagnose and then send that radioactive iodine treatment into my system to kill the rest of the cancer. That's so frustrating. Again, another season of just waiting 
for this drainage situation to work itself out so that I could get the treatment that I needed to kill off, you know, the cancer that we knew remained in my body um, because it just wasn't accessible. There were a couple tumors that were just, one was wrapped around my jugular Mm -hmm. vein and the other was wrapped kind of in and throughout um, my trachea and my voice box. And there was only so much scraping that you can do before you cause, you know, permanent damage to those areas. So it was those Mm -hmm. areas that they were hoping to target with this radioactive iodine. So it was really hard to wait um, and to continue to kind of have issues that needed to be addressed. But then the bigger issue was still that I had cancer and I just don't want to have cancer and I need this treatment. Um, And just having the treatment so close, like within your grasp yeah, and yeah, not being so able close, but to get so it far away when you, you know, know you need it. That was just another interesting season of waiting, but I did eventually receive the treatment and, um, it was less than what they had anticipated, uh, which was a good, we took that as a good sign. Like I didn't end up needing as much radioactive iodine. So I received that dosage and, um, it's one of the things where you have to kind of isolate yourself. This is pre-COVID, but uh, <laughs> I knew what it meant to isolate mm-hmm. and to kind of confine myself to one room and one bathroom um, alone for a matter of days because the radiation would be working itself out of my system and we didn't want to cause you know, secondary exposure to my husband. Mm. I did that and then it must have been early September that I was given an all clear and they didn't, you know, give me, they didn't say uh, remission, which is something I really longed for and something I still continue to work through in my own diagnosis, that desire for that word to be spoken to me as a cancer patient is a really real longing that was just kind of instilled in me as soon as I was diagnosed. Like you're just waiting for remission. And Mm. some cancers like don't get that word, even if you're healed. Um, And even if the cancer is, you know, gone as far as they can tell, um, specifically with thyroid cancer, my oncologists have always kind of um, stayed away from that word. And that has been kind of upsetting for me because I don't, in my mind, even though they're saying I'm healed, I kind of needed that word to like seal off the, you're done. Like it's over, you succeeded, you won. Um, And if you don't get that word, you haven't won it yet. But again, just another area in my life where I don't understand because I haven't studied the way these doctors and scientists and oncologists have studied so as just like a lay person to the medical field, you know, I hear cancer and I want remission, but I don't know the fact that not all cancers, you know, get to be in remission, even though sometimes you are kind of healed or better or whatever other word you want to insert in there, no signs of disease, I guess. So just expectations that I had in my mind of what cancer would look like or should look like for me in order to succeed. You know, just trying to let it be good, even if I wasn't hearing exactly what I thought I needed to hear. 
and it's good news, but it's not exactly the news that you wanted to hear. So yeah, we got that good news um, in September and we assumed, you know, because you just think doctors are right, um, we assumed they were accurate in giving me this no signs of disease statement or diagnosis or whatever. And we went on our merry way and had a farewell to cancer party. And, you know, I went back to work and we went back to our lives pre-cancer, kind of normal. And um, unfortunately in 2019, so maybe five months later, a lot of my same hypothyroid or slow thyroid problems returned. And Mm. we sought out my same primary care physician and she ran some initial labs and was like, you really need a specialist. Mm. And unfortunately in your area, there are none. Like we sent you to the best general surgeon we knew of for your neck region. But, you know, as far as like thyroid cancer, Um, There weren't any specialists at the time in this area. So we began the search for someone. And thankfully, um, we did find a specialist within the state, um, but we did have to drive to the University of Michigan, which is about two and a half hours from us, where we met with an oncological surgeon um, who specialized in thyroid cancer. And, um, this woman, um, is, was amazing. Um, but she is your stereotypical God complex surgeon Mm. with little to no bedside manner. Mm -hmm. And at this point in my life, I lost my mom. I had been diagnosed with cancer. I'd been told I was cancer free only to hear that I wasn't. This surgeon was like a slap in the face. Like, Mm. but I knew I needed her um, because I knew I needed a specialist, but just a really hard person for me to deal with. You're there. Um, You've been through all this. You got knocked down and you're back up again multiple times. And now you're faced with this difficult person. And it's just hard because you're like I've been through all this can you just give me Mm. someone can you just give me someone that relates to me that can understand what I need yeah and my I remember distinctly after one appointment my husband's a very like statistics and he wants the numbers and he wants to see your track record and he's very investigative And if you pass his tests, he will go with you regardless (laughs) of how you treat him um, and or how you treat me, I guess, in this scenario. And he said to me, you have friends to take you out for coffee. You do not need this surgeon to take you out for coffee. You need her to cut you open and to get this cancer out. And I was like, but why can't she just be nice? Like, (laughs) I was just desperate at this point for someone to validate that even though I had done everything right and I had trusted the doctors and I had done what they'd said and I'd had a couple setbacks that were out of my control, 
but I got back up and I conquered it after having conquered, you know, watching my mother die Mm -hmm. to have this doctor give me no sympathy was so hard for me. Like she had none. And because I didn't live in that area and I wasn't familiar with her nursing staff, and this was a massive hospital compared to what I was used to, you know, there were no real, uh, like that, that presence of those nurses that I referred to in my mom's care. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't have that here because I just wasn't there as frequently. Mm -hmm. And there were just so many of them. I didn't get to know any of them. And the ones that I did get to know were just kind of like, you just need to get over this doctor. Like she is great. You want her, you need her just like, you know, but that spring or whatever winter springtime for me, that was probably the hardest thing that I had to work through was just the fact that this doctor probably was the best and I needed her. Um, but she was not what I needed emotionally. And I really wanted her to fill that emotional role for me mm. um, in being sympathetic, I guess, not just. And just like validating that. Yeah. You're doing everything you can. <laughs> and or just like say cancer sucks. Like just tap me on the back and say, I know, Aaron, this is so hard. There was none of that. It was like, you need more drugs? Like, no, sorry. Like, here's some Tylenol. You can get that from Meyer. It was, um, yeah, it was really difficult. All right, guys, this is where I'm going to stop part one. Aaron just said a lot of things that I think we all need to hear, and I didn't want you guys to miss out on any of it. So that's why I made it two parts. I hope you guys were able to learn a lot from Aaron's story. And I know for me personally, it's definitely going to have a huge impact on my practice. The second part of this episode will be the next episode that's released. So stay tuned for that. It will be on the third Tuesday of this month. I hope you guys enjoyed listening and subscribe so you don't miss part two. Also, you can find us on social media at the Banana Bag Podcast. Thanks for listening and I'll see you next time.